This is Heather Vickery with the Brave Files podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 197, Sicario Movie Review. I'm Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, and this is, of course, Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, this week, we're going to be reviewing the 2015 FBI border action film Sicario. But before we get to that, Derek, what is new in pop culture in your world, my friend? Hey, Chris. Hi. Well, I had uh, only a little bit of time this week to take in some pop culture. But, you know, if you got to go, you got to stay in your wheelhouse. So, I watched a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watches documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. Nice. We got to play the song, so it's good. What what documentary did you watch, my friend? All right. Uh, On the strong recommendation of a very good friend of mine, Mm -hmm. I watched a Netflix documentary series called Murder Among the Mormons. Have you heard of it? Nope. <clears throat> okay, so Do it's you think three... I've heard of it? <laughs> I didn't think so, but you know, you never know. Sometimes I'm a little stuck in the stuff. past. If you didn't know. Okay, <laughs> so uh, it came out. I think this year or last year. It's three one-hour episodes, so it's a little bit less than an hour piece. So it's it's just under three hours if you want to watch the whole thing in one sitting, which okay. I did actually. I watched it in one sitting, and. It is about so again. It's about the the Mormon faith and documents pertaining to the Mormon faith. And in the mid 1980s, I think it was 1985, there was a bombing where some terrorists set off these bombs to deliberately target and kill people who were associated with the Mormon Church in Salt Lake City. And it turns out it was all related to a person who had been forging documents and selling them to the Mormon church. And some of these documents were kind of crazy. They like were directly in contradiction to some of the Mormon doctrine and faith. And the Mormon church was like, we want to buy these documents and bury them because they make us look bad or they contradict what we have been teaching for hundreds of years. And it is this craziness. Again, that's one of the things I love about documentaries. The fact that, they're real life. Like these are real stories. And it was, it was a guy who was a forger who realized very early on in his life that there was a niche market where he could forge books and papers and letters and documents and sell them to religious folks who would see them as a threat to the power they held and hide them. No one would ever validate their that they were real. No one would ever challenge their authenticity. They would rather just buy them, pay the hush money, and bury these documents. And then, of course, what ends up happening was the, the dollars that are associated with these sales of documents become so staggeringly big 
that people just are like, no, 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 no. we're not paying this money anymore. We're going to start looking into legitimize and validate the authenticity of these documents. And of course, the guy who's the forger is like, well, we can't have that happen. Time to start killing people. And this really happened in the 1980s. And it is crazy bananas. So it's this three part documentary series on Netflix. It's called Murder Among the Mormons. And oh, my God, it was I couldn't look away. It was fantastic. Wow. So. Strong recommendation from me, murdering the Mormons, whether you are religious, whether you are a person of faith, whether you are a Mormon, whether you love it, hate it, whatever, that's just part of the storytelling device uh, and part of the reality of how things played out. You got to watch this. It was great. All right. I got something for you. And I got something new again this week. So you should really be proud of the strides that I've been making lately in regards to watching newer stuff. You know, well, so. that is that is in our mandate at the beginning of the of the mm. podcast. Right. I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture yes. of today's generation. So I'm glad to see that I'm finally breaking through. So, Chris, what did you watch that was newer? Well, this is actually something that you originally suggested uh-huh. to me. So our, our format works. So I, I gave into the hype and my wife and I started watching this new series on Netflix. We got on the bandwagon and we started watching Squid Game. Awesome. Yeah, because you recommended it to it to me, and and then I also I saw it everywhere on social media. So yeah. so I gotta say, I'm not really sure what all the hype's about. Like I mean, it like it's it's okay, but even my wife, like you, you know, she likes all this new stuff too, and even her, she thinks it's kind of dumb. So it's not just me. So I I guess you could say that the concept is original and kind of cool, you know, but. Overall, I'd say the execution of it, no pun intended, by the way, uh, but mm-hmm. the execution, it's just not, I don't think it's all that good. Like, well, it's one thing I wanted to mention about it too. I, I started watching it in Korean with the subtitles and my wife, she just couldn't do it. So she she doesn't like to, to read apparently while watching a TV show. So I ended up switching it over to the version that's dubbed in English, but I accidentally left the subtitles on and... You know what? The English dubbing and the subtitles don't match up. Like, I mean, they're close, but they don't match up exactly. Like, for example, the, the English dubbing might say, like the, the character, he might say something like, that's my brother over there. Don't shoot him. And the subtitles would be like, I know him. Be kind to that man. So, so it's like they're kind of close, you know, but they just don't don't quite jive up. Um, but anyway... I think I'm just kind of waiting for the end of this thing. I think we've got like maybe two episodes left. And I think if they make a season two, because they, they always do that. I I don't I don't think I would watch it. But I mean, you really liked it, didn't you? I thought it was great. I actually watched the whole thing through twice. I watched it on my own and then I encouraged my wife to watch it. And when she was watching it, I watched it again because I felt there was a lot of um, a lot of hidden details that if you once you know the reveal of sort of what's going on and and by the time you end the the nine episodes and the sort of the curtain has been pulled back by rewatching it i was able to look for some of those clues of oh well that was there and that was who that person was and that's why they said or did this thing and yeah i i I personally i felt there was a lot of value watching it the second i almost i think i enjoyed it more the second time through once i sort of knew what the reveals were and what the the how it was going to end but to your point about the subtitles versus the dubbing, I've I've actually read a few articles where they talk about how both the subtitles and the dubs 
are not perfect, as you've obviously indicated. Mm -hmm. But there's other sort of subtleties with uh, with any time when you translate or interpret a language that it's it often comes down to the skill of the interpreter or the skill of the translator, depending on what it is. And there was there's been some very clear examples of the nuances of language, um, especially with a lot of the Asian languages where there are very, very, very subtle differences depending on how a word is said, what the inflection is, what the where the emphasis is placed on a certain word, more so than say the English language. And so like one of the examples that, the, that they gave was in one of the scenes, a character has constantly been saying to a person, the equivalent of you are my friend, you are my friend, you are my friend. And then there's a more personalized version of that word where it's, it, you're still saying you're my friend, but it's more like you are part of my family. It's a very subtle distinction. And apparently both the subtitles and the dubbing don't account for that differentiation. And in the scene where the character makes that distinction, it's sort of a, a little bit of a tell that, these two characters now v trust each other very, very much. So when there's an eventual betrayal, it hits even harder if you understand that the one character has very much just accepted the friendship of their of this other person. And it's these very, very subtle nuances that the Korean language offers that unfortunately are not translated as accurately in English. But again, you get the general idea, but it's some of those little subtle points that that have have undergone a lot of criticism with uh, with this thing, Squid Game. But but I again, almost everybody I know has now watched it or started to watch it. I'd be shocked if they don't have a second season. It's been so phenomenally oh, yeah. successful, and um, and they I mean, sort of spoiler, not spoiler. The end of it is set up in such a way that if they want to do a season two, right. I think they've set it up pretty clearly that that is possible. But they do. I felt they did a very good job of tying up most, if not all of the loose ends. Like you don't feel, you know, sometimes you watch something and you're like, like Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back ends. There has to be another movie. There were so many loose threads left. You're like, this can't possibly be the end of it. This Squid Game is nowhere near that open-ended. They very clearly didn't know when they made it if there would be a season two. So they tied up the vast majority of the loose ends so that you would have a satisfactory ending. But there was a few things they left hanging and they implied so that if there is a second season, you're like, okay, I think I know where they got to go with this one. So. I probably won't watch that second season. Like I said, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention too, I went to my local comic book store as I, as I am wont to do from time to time, Derek. Nice, And I went nice. there and I, they, I guess they had got some new like toys in, you know, like they sometimes, they sell comics and they also sell like, you know, action figures and toys and stuff like that. And they brought in some stuff from the late seventies, Battlestar Galactica. And I bought a Cylon Raider from nice. <laughs> so nice. Awesome. The, the Battlestar Galactica toys, they were kind of dumb and cheesy and like the, the figures didn't really look like the real characters, but I still loved it anyway. But the cool thing was, is the Cylon Raider that I got, it was one of the ones, so, so way back when, you know, in 1978, when this came out, was the Cylon Raider, the sides would open up and then they had these two little buttons and you'd push them and there were these like little red, almost kind of these little laser pegs. And so these yes. little red things were and you push them out and they would shoot out. But what happened was some kids choked on these things because they would shoot it and it would go in their mouth and they would choke on it. So the company, to avoid lawsuits, 
then started putting them all out. The majority of them got put out with the red pegs like locked in. So right. they, they were in there. You could see the little red pegs. You could push the button and they did not come out. The one that I have is one of the ones that actually shoots the red pegs. The red pegs are no longer there, but it's the one that actually shoots them. So nice. I don't know nice. if that makes it more of a collectible item or not. I don't know. But wait, uh, did you buy a Cylon Raider to pilot the ship? No, one didn't come with it. So maybe I'll have to get, but they were like really little tiny figures and they didn't even really look like Cylons. Like I said, it was kind of cheap, but I mean, it was still, it didn't matter. I loved that show so much when I was eight years old, like it didn't matter. Just having a piece of it at home was just, was so cool. So. That's fantastic. You have to watch the remake they did. A, like, I guess it's probably almost 10 years ago now. Yeah, it was, it was it very was... strong. It was, it was very, very good. I mean, even just the, they launched it off with, I think it was a four or a six hour mini series movie. And even just watch that. And if you don't like it, give up on it. But I think, I think that's enough that would probably get you hooked. I think it ran five or six seasons. It yeah. was very, very strong. I, I really, I, don't know. I think that the whole point of the, the reason why I liked the original one was, there was a certain campiness to it in a way that, sure. I, that I liked. And, and so to, to go a little bit more serious, you know, wouldn't be good. So, and, okay. and, 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 and speaking of going serious, I never like to go serious. So in that thing, here's your dad joke of the week. I thought since we're doing Sicario this week and Sicario has to do with FBI, you know, the FBI yep. agents involved. So I thought I'd do an, an FBI joke for you this week, Derek. Okay? Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> I'm already, I already, I'm already worried. This is going to be very inappropriate. <laughs> you would be correct. Oh jeez. <laughs> All right. I'll try and get through this as much as I can. Why was the FBI agent happy after he visited a Oh boy, I, I don't even want to know the punchline, but I have no idea, Chris, why <laughs> he received an anonymous tip. <laughs> you, you realize this is a family show, right? It's not making it past the censors. the big mac and we have the big mick he helped yeah. him again get off the ad oh yeah that guy that man. guy Joe Lewis was 76 years old well i know you used to work at the chuck e cheese right what is that real velvet oh that boy is good that boy yeah. can sing that could work sexual chocolate oh I, i've heard those lines before <laughs> ah what do you know from funny all right we've spent the past several weeks around here back in the 80s you know, we held our pop culture fantasy draft in the year 1981, which was cool. We reviewed For Your Eyes Only and Escape from New York. And then last week we gave our top five list of movies that we watched way, way too young. So they were all 80s movies pretty much. And most of those were 80s movies, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so we figured we needed to come back into the current generation this week. And so, so Derek, you nominated the 2015 film Sicario for us to watch. And I did. naturally I hadn't seen it. You know, of course not. It came out after 1989, after all. So, uh, Derek, why don't you get us started? So, why this movie? You you could have picked any single movie at all from this generation, you know, and you went with this one. So, why? Okay, so in the last episode, I had talked about how I had just gone out to the theater and watched the new film Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve, and. I thought it was fantastic. If you haven't seen it, I strongly encourage you to go out and watch it, especially I encourage you to go to the theater. If you're comfortable doing that, it's great. Um, so in order to keep in that same theme, I wanted to bring 
another Denny Villeneuve movie to the podcast. Now we've already done um, Arrival, which is one of I, I think it's probably well maybe not his. I think Dune is probably his best, but I think Arrival is a is is strong from him as well. I know you didn't really care for it. We did it on a previous podcast. Mm-hmm. We won't rehash all that. So I wanted to revisit something else he had done. You know, a little more recently, uh, he had also done the the Blade Runner sequel, Blade Runner 2049. But that comes with its own baggage, being a sequel, and being part of a franchise. Sicario, many people believe is his best work to date. It has a phenomenal cast and it's got a lot of good things going for it, in my opinion, and in many people's opinion. It's only a few years old. It came out in 2015. It was popular enough and got enough and earned enough money that they made a sequel. Of course, the sequel wasn't directed by Denny Villeneuve, but it had some of the featured some of the same characters. And so I thought, well, you know what? This was a good pick to to stay in that Denny Villeneuve wheelhouse. Um, I love that Emily Blunt is the main character. She's a strong female protagonist she takes no crap she's an fbi agent she's the first through the door i mean we don't have enough of these movies in the 80s where the women kick ass and take names and this is definitely a movie where um you know despite the fact that she's sort of thrown in the deep end with a bunch of people she doesn't know it's clear that she can hold her own when she needs to and in many cases in many scenes in this movie she does um so i thought you know what let's revisit it now in all fairness I hadn't seen this movie since night since uh, 2015, so it's been five or six years. I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw it right after it came. Like as soon as it came on home video, that's the first time I saw it was in my in my home my home theater on Blu-ray, and I remembered enjoying it immensely, and I remember enjoying the sequel a lot too. Unfortunately, I think I was blurring the first movie and the second movie together in my memory. So that is something we'll talk about as we move forward. But I wanted you to watch this in part because it was a Denny Villeneuve movie, in part because it was a newer film, in part because it had great actors providing great performances. And I'm hoping that you at least enjoyed it. But, you know, given that it came out after 1989, I expect there will be some resistance and some pushback. But we've got another 30 minutes to talk about that. So, you know, anyway, that that was why I recommended it. I would say like most of the films that you recommend for me, you know, it was okay. You know, I I don't think it was anything overly special, but I will say it was, it was pretty stylistic. So I guess that was pretty cool. And that was a big part of why I recommended it is Denny Villeneuve has a certain style to his direction. And I think that in the years to come, we're going to see a lot more from him. And, And like I said, a lot of critics believe that this is his apex based on what he's put out so far pre Dune. I think, Years to come, Dune will certainly be among his best work. But if you ask a lot of fans right now, a lot of critics, what is Denny Villeneuve's best movie as a director? Most of them, 90% of them are going to give you this movie as their answer. Yeah, I I think to quote Randy Jackson from American Idol, it was just okay for me, dog. You know, it was it was okay. I went uh, so the, it was directed like you said by Denny Villeneuve, and he's French Canadian. He's from Trois Rivières, which is yeah. pretty cool. Um, it stars Emily Blunt, Josh Brolin, Benicio del Toro. Had a budget of thirty million dollars. It made forty six million at the domestic U.S. boss box office, and that placed it sixty second in twenty fifteen. It finished just behind some movie called Jupiter Ascending and Poltergeist. Oh, I've seen that one. Poltergeist. What? What the hell? Did they make a remake of Poltergeist? 
I guess so. Let me tell you, Jupiter Ascending was pretty terrible. It had Channing Tatum and uh, uh, the girl from that 70s show, the hot one. I can't remember her name right now. I'm sorry. The girl Mina Coolis. Oh, okay. That's, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But Poltergeist, what the hell? They, I can't believe they remade that movie. Jesus. So um, the top five at the box office that you were Jurassic World finished number one. Star Wars, um, The Force Awakens finished second. It, that, that only because it came out like right just before Christmas. But even yeah. it came out on December 18th, it still grows $651 million before the end of the year. Yeah, <laughs> Went on to gross almost a billion, like crazy. Yep. Then there's Avengers Age of Ultron, Inside Out, Furi- Furious 7. Furious 7. I like how they've just given up on movie titles in sequels at this point. Mm-hmm. Like it goes from the Fast and the Furious to Fast and Furious, and then just a Fast and Furious 2, and then it's like, Furious 7. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's so stupid. But anyway, you mentioned the cast in this film, and I think it's important to talk about them. Emily Blunt. I don't really, at least going into this, I didn't really know much about her. I haven't seen her in a lot of movies. Um, I saw well, her- we, and remember, Chris, we watched a previous movie I had recommended to you. It was called Edge of Tomorrow, uh, which stars Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. So I, oh, uh, that, that's right, where they were on the yeah. beach and they kept like reliving and it. And it was like reliving oh, the day yeah. over and over again. Yes, she was a female lead in that one as well. I mean, clearly that was a Tom Cruise movie that Emily Blunt was in. But this one, she was the first name on the marquee. This was an Emily Blunt film. She was in a movie called The Girl on the Train. My wife made me go see it at the theater. It was a few years back now. I, I thought it was awful. Like, I, I didn't think she was very good at it either. But but anyway, that being said, I think she's actually a really good actress. I, I, she's I great. I'd, I'd like to see her in a few more meteor roles. You know, like we've seen her in this. And like I say, that the train movie was stupid. And then the the Tom Cruise one. But I, I think I think she's got the acting chops to take on some better roles. You know, I, I also I think she's very unique and she's charismatic. You know, she she doesn't look like your typical Hollywood bombshell actress. But the thing is, you can't take your eyes off of her when she's on the screen. So she's got that screen presence, you know, and, and like I said, she's very, very unique. So so I, I think she's mm-hmm. pretty good. Um, Josh Brolin. Guy's done a lot over the years. I mean, he was in No Country for Old Men. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Milk. His dad's James Brolin. You know, he was in Amityville Horror and Capricorn One and... He was Thanos in the Avengers movies, which is the main villain in like the first 20 Avengers movies. James Brolin, his dad was or or Josh was? James Brolin. uh, Josh Brolin. Oh, I was talking about about his dad. One thing about his dad, his dad was actually going to take over for Roger Moore as James Bond in Octopussy. He was all set. He was going to shoot and everything. And Roger Moore decided he wanted to come back and, and stay at it for a few more years. But wow. uh, but anyway, um, Josh Brolin's pedigree aside, I will always think of Josh Brolin as Bran from the Goonies. I was going to say the <laughs> older brother in Goonies. Yeah, yeah like that's always what I think of him. But but I thought he was pretty good in this. And then Benicio del Toro, been nominated for two Oscars, 20, 2003. Uh, he was nominated for twenty one Grams, and then he won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in two thousand for Traffic. Traffic, yeah. And he was in, I believe he was in one of those Marvel movies that you made me watch. 
Uh, he was in Guardians of the Galaxy, and he appeared, I think, in a couple other ones in a supporting role as the same character. Yeah. Benicio Del Toro is one of those guys that it's like he usually doesn't have a big role, but when he's on screen, you just can't help but admire his talent. Like, this guy is a real deal. I love him. I think he's great. Yeah, I thought he was pretty good here. Like, I think he's he's another unique actor. You know, there's no one quite like him, you know, in Hollywood. But uh, another one I want to talk about was Victor Garber. So he played mm-hmm. Dave Jennings in this movie. You know the character I mean, like the guy I mean, Victor Garber? Yeah, he was a guy from Alias, right? Yeah, yeah, he's Canadian, right? He's Canadian, is he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so back in the 70s, he was in a stage production of Godspell in Toronto. And, and, and the thing was, back then, everyone who was anyone back in the up-and-coming acting scene in Toronto, they all wanted to be in Godspell. There was Gilda Radner and Eugene Levy and Jane Eastwood and Martin Short. But Victor Garber, like he was the big guy. Like he played Jesus in Godspell. And he was the one that all the other actors looked up to. You know, like he was he was one everyone thought was going to be this huge Hollywood star. But he never achieved that level of success. You know, like he's worked consistently. Like you said, he was an alias. He was in Titanic. But he just never became that huge star that I think his fellow Canadian actors thought that he would. But... I thought he was good in this. I like him. I think he's he's a good actor. Yeah, I mean, he has a small role in this. And he's, uh, more recently, he's been in the um, DC Comics television universe. He was in the um, the Flash TV show for a while. And then his character moved on to the DC Legends of Tomorrow. So again, he's he's worked pretty consistently. But to your point, I, I agree. It's He's sort of never seemed to hit that A-list. He's almost like... Let's put him on the B list or the even the C list, but I don't think he's hurting for cash. Like I think he's earned very well mm-hmm. over his over his career. But yeah, ex- I agree with you though. I don't think he ever hit the the big time A list. I uh, he's been in a lot you, of stuff, but yeah, yeah. Especially when you go back, like I say, back to those days when when they were all starting out. Like he was the guy that they thought would be the the big star. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Again, you mentioned or, you know we talked about this movie being stylistic. So the scenes early in the FBI headquarters that are all shot behind those panes of glass. Yeah. Really stylistic. I liked it. It kind of drives home the fact that, you know, these conversations that they're having are all taking place, you know, close by. They're in sight, but they're in secret. Yes. In fact, I think at one point, even the TV is on and it's got like CNN or something like that. And when the door closes, the audio from the TV broadcast goes silent. I, I thought there was some pretty cool techniques, like film techniques in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the opening scene when they raid the drug dealer's house and then they find all those bodies behind the walls. Mm-hmm. Pretty graphic. <laughs> pretty Very gross. gruesome, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also pretty weird if you think about it. Why would drug dealers put bodies behind drywall? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it, I think it just... It would smell. The blood would, like, leak through the walls. Like, not a really good place to hide bodies, I wouldn't think. I, uh, I, I seem to remember... Again, I watched this movie. So we do our podcast Thursday night. I watched Sicario the next Friday because I couldn't wait to watch it. So it's been six days. But um, I seem to remember that the bodies that were encased in the walls were covered in plastic. Were they not? Like the idea yeah, being let's, up in plastic, let's encapsulate still, I mean, these decomposing like, bodies. But to your point, eventually you would smell them. But I think I think that whole scene just went to illustrate the 
brutality yeah. of the cartel, the people associated with the cartels, the Who fact that they would, with, right? Yeah, like yeah. they don't they don't put up with any crap. They right. will go to these great lengths to outright murder, torture, and kill anybody who stands in their way. They don't fear the repercussions. They will take these steps to hide the bodies. Like I think it, it's important in that early scene that you just see how over the top they will take it so that you understand the seriousness of the violence and the brutality and ultimately the dollars and cents that are associated with the acts and the actions. Like these drug dealers are in it for the money and there is a ton of money changing hands with all of these drug deals. You're right. And the director really reinforces it too. When, when those bodies are hung from the, the highway overpass again, yeah. like really graphic, really gross. And the, the idea, like you said, is it lets you know, these drug dealers, they're ruthless, they're inhuman monsters, right? Absolutely. It, it, it really Absolutely. sort of sets up the movie too, if you think about it, because it gives you a sense of, of what these guys are up against, you know, in terms of a foe, right? Well, and they even in the dialogue, like in the first 20 or 30 minutes when they when they're back in the FBI headquarters and they they ask Emily Blunt's character, like, do you want to be a part of this special task force? And she starts to realize, like, they're going to maybe do things that are a little that will cause them to blur the lines between like legal versus illegal and good and bad. And, And I think it might even be Victor Garber's character. I honestly don't remember where he says something like. Look, you you made so much so many busts in the last year that it doubled what you did the year before. Do you feel that you've made a difference? And she's like, "Well, no, not really." And it's like, "Well, you're putting in all that work and all that effort and you're not seeing any you're not even moving the dial a tiny bit. If you join this task force, you can really affect the people that are the cause of the problem." And I, and I think that's an important uh an important, you know, part of the movie to emphasize like yeah, even as Emily Blunt's character starts to realize, like, there's some weird stuff going on here that maybe she personally, morally doesn't want to be a part of. If her ultimate objective is to punish those who are the absolute most responsible for these atrocities, mm-hmm. sometimes you got to work outside of the, the the boundaries of what you would normally expect to be good and bad. You know, when we talk about it being stylistic, the shots of the suburbs I thought were cool. A lot of them, they're, they're, they're shot from a distance. And like the one neighborhood looks like it's totally isolated from the rest of society. It's like out in the middle of the desert. I, I, I'm sure that's the idea, you know, just to give it yeah. this isolated sort of quality. And then I also like the shots from ab- from above when they're looking yes. down at all the rows of houses. Again, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, but the director even uses that same um, style when they they shoot various scenes in Mexico where they're showing the isolation yes. it's like there's nobody around here's a mountain range here's this winding road that has no cars or people on it and you're just sort of seeing this overhead shot that is likely done from like a helicopter or a drone with the camera simply pointing down and it's like he just pans across the landscape and you're like this is this vast landscape where there's nobody well of course the drug dealers are going to go out where there's nobody they don't want to be involved with anything they want complete secrecy and the, just the style the director uses to emphasize this point is is great. And, I, and this is the kind of thing that you see in some of his other films as well. So this is almost like his, his one of his signatures. But even with all that, I think the thing for me is like I, I have zero desire to watch this movie again. And this keeps coming up every time we watch a newer movie. And, and I think that's the thing with, with these, these, these films. 
They're big and they're splashy. But for me, once you've seen it, you're done. You know, on the other hand, if you think of Gen X movies, they're just inherently rewatchable. Like, I think it's just a pop culture fact. Do you agree with that or no? Yeah, I definitely think that some of the newer movies lack some of the rewatchable characteristics that some of the older movies may have. But let me ask you this. So we said on the outset, this this is Sicario. There is a sequel to this movie. It's called Sicario Day of the Soldado. It's a couple. It came out a couple of years later, and it features the characters of played by Josh Brolin and Benicio del Toro. Now, knowing you haven't seen that, because I know it came out after 1989. <laughs> now no, that you've seen, seen this that. movie, mm-hmm. is knowing there's a sequel that features those two characters and the kind of things you see them do in this movie, would that appeal to you enough to want to watch a sequel as opposed to rewatching this? If you knew that you could watch this sequel. Or would you be like, nah, I didn't even dig this one enough that those two characters don't interest me. I don't care what they do next. No, I don't think I would because I think the only character that I really liked the most was Emily Blunt's character. Which, unfortunately, she's not in the sequel. Yeah, she's not in the sequel. uh, So I I don't think I would have any interest in that. That's fair. When they get into the gunfight with the drug dealers in the traffic jam. And then and oh, and like we, at the border. Yeah. And, and, and okay. she's all like, like, what are we doing? Like, this is this is illegal. Now, I don't profess to know the details, you know, regarding international law between, you know, the U.S. and Mexico in regard to this stuff. But, you know, I think when drug dealers are getting out of cars and pulling automatic weapons, I think you shoot first and you ask questions later. Is it, don't like So is what they're doing illegal? Well, I mean, at one point, the again, you have to rely the, on the characters in the movie to tell you what is and isn't legal. So I think one of the characters even says, if they shoot at us, we can shoot back. Otherwise, don't shoot. And likewise, if they if until they get out of their cars, we are not to get out of our cars. So, I, again, I got to assume that the people who are providing that direction in the course of the script know what they're talking about and follow some sort of legality and whether or not that is actually legal, whether or not this is actually the way things would play out, I have no idea. But in the context of this film, those are the rules that are presented and those are the rules that our quote unquote heroes follow. So I, I just got to assume that they're doing the the right thing as it's presented to us as the film film going audience. Yeah, sure. Her character, I think, likens it to being a soldier. And she's yes. worried about starting a war. I, I guess maybe the issue is like, you know, they're in Mexico, not in the United States. So right. although there was Mexican police there with them, I guess, you know, the FBI agents pulled the trigger more than once. So I guess they were directly responsible for deaths on foreign soil. I guess that would probably be the issue. Well, I think, I think again, I don't know for certain because mm-hmm. some of the details are a little blurry. The movie's a little long. Was that the only actual quote-unquote FBI agent is Emily Blunt and a federal agent from the U.S. can only act within the U.S. borders because they're that's their mandate but the other characters all represent say something like CIA which is international right so those characters can take the actions that we see them that we see them them Mm -hmm. see them doing and some of them are like third-party contractors and and things that you see a lot of the more current media use things like in uh, Afghanistan, you see these third party 
uh, mercenaries that work under the contracts of the U.S. government. Like that was sort of more my idea of how everybody else was. They were capable and legally allowed to act on foreign soil. It was more the FBI agent that she presented. It's like, when can she as an FBI federal U.S. agent take action? And I think that's what the whole thing of you don't shoot at them unless they shoot at you first. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. They shoot at her and that's when she acts. She doesn't leave the car until they literally shoot out the window and shoot at her. And then she takes action to defend herself. It's not to say all the other people follow those same rules, but those are the rules we see her follow. I have a question for you. Right after that scene, they get this Mexican guy and they take him in, into like this interrogation room. And Benicio Del Toro kind of like, it's like pushing up against him. Mm-hmm. And then they imply that he does something to him. But I'm not sure what, like, what the hell happened in that scene? I, I think it's best left to your imagination. It's yeah, something that he's I, able to interrogate him in some way that that has him spill the beans. And again, this is why the characters of Benicio Del Torrio and Josh Brolin are used in the sequel. Because it's like, you see them doing some things in this movie that you're like, oh, okay, they clearly have like a shorthand. There's clearly rules they are willing to bend and break to get the outcome they want. And obviously the people that finance movies felt these two characters have enough on-screen presence that we can do a sequel that features these two guys. And it's those kinds of actions that are fleshed out a little more in the sequel. There's one scene too where Emily Blunt is like looking through all these FBI photos of dead bodies. What do you think? Any chances those are real? I mean, like I doubt it, but I mean, they just look so real. I, I kept thinking they might be real photos of like drug related deaths. They like had like bodies laying all over the streets and stuff like that. I don't know. Could be, could be. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're making a movie, it's all about cost efficiency. So maybe they were able to purchase real photos or come to some arrangement with a law enforcement agency to say, we want real life photos that are not going to compromise any ongoing investigations. Mm -hmm. And that way they didn't have to pay makeup artists and actors to actually make these photos for the purpose of the movie. I honestly, I don't know, but you're, it's a good point. Either they were real photos in which case you gross, or they were faked in which case, Hey, kudos to the makeup and the mm-hmm. actors that, that posed for these photos. There was just a realism about them that just really struck me. Absolutely. Yes. So, um, so then she goes into the bar and she, the guy that she picks up in the bar turns out he's, he's trying to kill her. Right. I recognize him right away. He was in The Walking Dead. Yeah, Shane in The Walking Dead. He also played the Punisher in the Marvel Netflix series, uh, Daredevil and the Punisher. Oh, right. Okay. And then I thought it was interesting. She sees the money clip, right? She knows, you know, he's with the drug. She sees the rubber bands, right? Yeah. yeah, That they put around the the money. Blue and purple or whatever it is, the blue and pink rubber bands. Yeah. And again, you know, the movie was stylistic. So there's that whole tunnel scene with the night vision goggles. And there was these mm-hmm. two different views incorporated into that whole sequence, which I thought was kind of cool. There was the the film negative shots. Mm-hmm. And then there was the whole green night vision view. That, yeah. gr- that green night vision thing, it, it kind of looked like the, the Paris Hilton sex tape. Or, or <laughs> you know, so I've heard. 
I wouldn't know. I've not that I've seen, seen it. it. You know, I, of course I, not. Of I course heard, not. We hear. Don't worry, Chris. Time. Your wife doesn't listen to podcasts. You're safe. <laughs> Just hear about these things. Um, okay, so this movie was nominated for three Oscars. It was nominated for Best Cinematography. Was one of them. It 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 was also nominated up against Mad Max Fury Road, and it lost to The Revenant. It was nominated for Best Sound Editing. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road won that one. It was also nominated up against uh, Star Wars for Best Sound Editing. And then it was nominated for Best Original Score, which it lost to The Hateful Eight. But the score, I thought it was just basically like a foghorn. <laughs> like that's all that really stood out to me. Yeah, so. that that one seemed like an odd one to me. Again, this was a, a particular, in my opinion, this was a particularly good Oscar year. There was a lot of strong contenders. I don't necessarily think the Star Wars film was a strong contender, but Mad Max definitely was. The Revenant, eh, you know, I could love it or hate it or leave it or not. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't begrudge those other movies for – um, for basically, quote unquote, taking the Oscar from this movie. Mm-hmm. I think this was a strong contender, but I don't necessarily think that it was, you know, it was robbed. It deserved an Oscar. It was mm-hmm. it was good. I think the nominations, uh, given that the Denny Villeneuve is a relatively young director, I think just having a couple of nominations on his movie is is, you know, a positive on everybody's resume. But I don't feel that it was robbed of something it duly deserved based on my rewatch of this film. And best original score. You mentioned uh, some, it was a good year for, for movies in terms of like, you know, critically acclaimed movies at the Oscars. But for best original yeah. score, that wasn't the case because Hateful Eight won. But it was up against Sicario and Star Wars, The Force Awakens, which that was a great score in 1977. You know, yeah, and then yeah. Bridge of Spies and Carol. I don't even know what the hell those movies are. Womp womp. Uh, yeah, that was that was not a good category. Um, the scene at the end where Benicio del Toro kills the drug lord's family and then kills him. You know, I thought it was just so brutal. There was just such a I don't know brutality to it, but it was like in a way you you should feel bad. I mean, these kids just got killed and stuff, but in a way, it's kind of like well. That guy's a drug deal. Like he brought this on himself in a lot of ways because he killed uh, Benicio del Toro's family too. And then I thought it was interesting right after that uh, the scene where he forces her to sign the affidavit, you know, signing yeah. that everything they did was legal or whatever. And he, you know, puts the gun to her head. Right? And he he makes a comment. And he says, "This is an area of wolves. You're not a wolf." And he's right because yeah. when he walks away, she pulls a gun on him. And she can't bring herself to shoot him, so she's not a wolf, you know. Yeah, I think I think the the idea here is that the wolves will do whatever it takes to get what they want, whereas if you're not a wolf, you will play within the rules. And I think that's an important distinction with the Emily Blunt character is, despite what they ask her to do, despite what she actually does, despite what she sees, she clearly has moral objections to the way some of these things are being done. Now she does sign the paper, you know, largely because he's going to kill her if she doesn't. Um, And, and there's certain other things where it's like she goes along because she realizes, you know, there's, there's really, if she objects, it's not going to change what happens. But I think that's part of the point of the movie is the whole movie is told from her point of view and it's like they establish early on 
she's law and order. She follows the rules. She works within the system or she wants to work within the system to get the proper, like she talks about the, the scene where they raid the bank. She talks about like, we want to bring these people in. This is a, this is a case we can make. We can arrest these people. And the rest of them are like, no, 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 no. You're wasting your time. This is, this is a small fish in a big pond. We are going after bigger fish. Leave it. And she objects and she's like, no, 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 we got to do this. Do they this. know the game. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of the point of the movie is, yeah, you can play within the rules, but maybe if you don't understand the complexity of the game, the rules as you understand them don't apply to everybody. And these other guys are saying like, we do understand the rules of the bigger game and we are willing to take the steps. You know, Benicio Del Toro's character is willing to kill children and women you know, the family mm-hmm. of the drug Lord as a part of the objective to, to hamper or stop some of these drugs, some of the drug trade. And it's like, those are clearly not actions. Emily Blunt's character would ever take given her understanding and familiarity and, 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 you know, what she will and will not do. But, and I think that's a big part of what this movie sort of presents is there are bigger issues out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could play within your little sandbox and do your little thing, but once you sort of open your eyes and see the bigger world, are you willing to make, are you willing to break some of the rules as you understand them? Are you willing to take some of those bigger steps, even if they're outside of the law or outside of the rules as you understand them for the greater good? And, and it and, doesn't and, seem like she is. She's and, like, you know. Yeah. And, and you really bring up a good point because there, there's so much going on in the movie in terms of, you know, what, what's happening, even the motivations of that scene. Yes. It's not yes. just it. Part of it is to end the drug trade, but there's also revenge, you know, what's of course going there on is. Scene, so, and then the final scene when the, the dead cops kid waits for him to come home, you yeah. know? And, and so him and the mom just, they go out to the soccer and then you hear all that gunfire in the distance. It just, it just starts all over again, you know, which I don't get anything very stylistic. I, I think, but I thought it was okay. I thought it was good, you know, but I wouldn't watch it again, but you know, it was okay. It was okay. Okay. So, well, give it, give it a score out of 10. What What would you, mm, what would you think? I'd probably give it maybe like a six or a seven. Yeah. That's sort of where I felt. I gave you know? it a probably a seven, a solid yeah. seven. And honestly, when I watched this, I, it had been, a, it had been a few years, but I think I was blurring the lines of, this film and the sequel. And I think if once I rewatched this, I thought as much as I, I did like this, I think I remember liking the sequel a lot more. And when I was watching this one, I was expecting certain scenes and certain events to happen. And when they didn't happen, I thought to myself, well, that must've happened in the sequel. You know what? I think I'm going to have to rewatch the sequel. Cause I think I like that more, but I didn't <laughs> want to rewatch the sequel until we did this podcast. So between this week and next week, I will rewatch the sequel to this because I now want to, because I want to remember, well, I seem to remember X, Y, Z happened and that didn't happen in this film. So anyway, it is what it is. One of the things about the sequel again to this movie, I haven't seen it or whatever. But I just, that, that stands out in my mind, I remember a couple of years ago, the former president of the United States, he was trying to drum up all this fear amongst, you know, his base with people at, at the border. He was like, you know, these, these, this Mexican caravans coming into the United States and they're taking women and they're taping them up and they're throwing them in the backseat of cars. And they're like, actually, that was Sicario 2. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, but anyway, so, all right, time now for some fun with caveman all right my friend so this movie 
prominently featured the FBI. As you yes, know. it did. So yep. I'm going to ask you trivia questions about other movies that feature the FBI. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. Kind of interesting. It should be good. So catch me if you can, Derek. We You had us watch that movie just a, just a few episodes ago here on the podcast. Yeah. I just re-listened to that podcast today. Oh, there you go. So, so you're going to remember this. In that movie, Frank Abagnale Jr. takes FBI agents on this wild goose chase right across the country. But when it's all said and done, he ends up on a game show telling his story. So, Derek, what game show did Frank Abagnale Jr. appear on in the opening of the film? I believe that was To Tell the Truth. You're just you're a trivia master around here. Well, that's uh, honestly, Chris, that's only because I... Like, I like to re-listen to our old shows, Mm -hmm. but I like to give them a few weeks so they don't just remind me of what we just did a few days ago. So I literally listened to that one today. And it was like... I have a question for you then, like outside of trivia. Why do you like to listen to our old old shows? Does it help you make you a better podcaster? Like, you listen to it? Like, why? Partly, I want to hear how the production value of our show plays out. I want to... How does it play out? Pretty good? Yeah, well, some show shows are better than others, let's be honest. And I mean, in all fairness, partly I just, you know, it's ego. I want to hear myself talk. Because, oh, okay. But uh, but I also want to, like, I love re-listening to the trivia because even though it's only a few weeks old, sometimes it's like, oh, my God, I still don't remember that answer. So, that, <laughs> so, that's, so, that's, so sometimes you're saying the production values aren't very good. So we have to blame our, our producer, Sloth. The, the guy that we keep chained up in the basement that has to do all this uh, editing, we have to blame him for that. So, well, I mean, you know. for the most part, it's it's pretty good. I mean, yeah. I think I think we I think we passed the sniff test on most weeks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Another question: This 1986 movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as a former FBI agent was originally titled "Let's Make a Deal." Derek, can you name the movie? Uh... I think this is one that I actually just watched a few weeks ago, and it was called Raw Deal. Again, you're the trivia guy. Nice. So now Schwarzenegger wasn't the only action movie star to portray a former FBI agent. Dwayne The Rock Johnson also played a former FBI agent trying to rescue his family from a high-rise building in 2018 Skyscraper. Yeah, that was a great movie. It was a lot what of fun. What Canadian actress played his wife? Oh, that was um, oh, the girl from Scream. It was uh, Nev Campbell. Yes. I remember when I was a young actor in Toronto back in the day, and my roommate at the time was doing this show called Catwalk or something like that with her. And I don't know, we went to this party and she was there. Okay, so uh, this 1988 movie starring Robert De Niro and the late, great Charles Grodin is about a bounty hunter and an accountant working with the FBI to bring down a mob boss. Can you name the film? Midnight Run. All right, we're going to go back. Never, no, I've never seen it. Oh, never it's seen so it. good. It's Oh, good. Did it have, is that the movie that had the guy from Beverly Hills Cop that played Taggart? Uh, yeah, I think he was in that movie, if I remember correctly. Okay. I, so, I think I saw like the first 15 or 20 minutes of that and went, this is dumb. I and just I just remember it Charles Grodin was so good. Okay, so we're going to go back to 1975. Okay. Oh, boy. And yeah. so this 1975 movie is about a man named Sonny 
who robs a bank in order to pay for his lover's sex change operation. However, things go wrong and Sonny finds finds himself in a hostage situation and in a standoff with the FBI. Can you name the film, Derek? Uh, Did it star Al Pacino? Maybe. Maybe. I, I have not seen it, but I believe it was called Dog Day Afternoon. Very good. Yes, it was Dog Day Afternoon. Great film. Okay, this 1991 cult film features a storyline involving undercover FBI agents, bank robbers, and surfing. And it was promoted with the tagline of 100% pure adrenaline. Can you name the film? So what was the year again? 1991. Uh, Was Kate Bigelow the director? Yes, she was. It was Point Break then. Yes, with Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. That movie's a lot of fun. I rewatched that like within the last year and it was way better than I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, this 2000 crime comedy featured Martin Lawrence as an FBI agent who goes undercover as a grandmother who then falls in love with his granddaughter. Uh, that would be Big Mama's House. <laughs> How the hell do you know that? Okay. And and if, if that wasn't enough, I'm fairly certain they made Big Mama's House 2 because one Big Mama isn't enough. Ain't you enough. need Big Mama's House 2. <laughs> of course. All right. In this 1997 film, directed by world-renowned Hong Kong director John Woo, Derek, an FBI agent undergoes facial transplant surgery to assume the identity of a criminal mastermind. Yep. This is one of my all-time favorite movie quotes where he says, I want to take his face off. And then he says, no more drugs for that man. The movie was Face Off. See, you're killing it as always. Okay, in the 1990 crime comedy, My Blue Heaven. Oh, I love this movie. Steve Martin plays a mobster being protected by an FBI agent. Who plays the FBI agent in the movie? Rick Moranis. And this last one. I love that movie. That movie is fantastic. It holds up really well. I've watched that one recently too. All right, last one. This one you got. This 2009 film features the FBI working with a whistleblower in the commercial livestock industry. The whistleblower is played by none other than your Hollywood boyfriend. Matt Damon. Name the movie. Jeez. Uh, wow. Uh, was it The Informant? God, okay. You went yes. 10 for 10. Congratulations. <laughs> well done, my friend. Very that was good. a tough one. I, I watched I saw the informant at the Toronto International Film Festival when it premiered. Oh wow. And I remember thinking, eh, it was just okay. And I have never rewatched that movie. And I don't know anybody else other than me who ever saw that movie. Well, because it was crappy, right? I heard it was crappy, yeah. So uh on your next week, and I hear you have something special lined up for us Derek what do you got I got a very special guest star coming cool. to our to visit our podcast this is a friend of the show uh, one of my very good friends who was one of my college roommates who I've known for wow I guess we're going on 30 years now 
He uh, worked with me at Blockbuster Video for many years and has a particularly unique take on pop culture. And we're going to come back next week and we're actually going to do a music topic. Oh, we don't do enough music around here, do we? We don't do enough music. And that is exactly what he said. He said, you know, I love his show, but we don't have enough music topics. So he suggested one. We're going to come back next week with a music topic and a very special guest. I encourage everybody to come back and take a listen. Join us next week. Do you, do you want to say what the topic is? I'm curious. Nope. Is it? No, no, I do not. I want to completely be surprised. surprised? I'm just going to, sh- I'm just going okay. to say it's a music topic with a very special guest. Join us next week. Right. Find out all about it. This ought to be fun. All right. So make sure you join us again next week when we have a very special guest joining us and a mystery topic to boot. So it should be good. But until next week, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Thank you.